This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 622, a conversation with Brian Augustine. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, and this is episode 622, A Conversation with Brian Augustine. I had the good fortune to speak with Brian recently, and uh, we got to ch- chat about Archie 1941, of which the first two uh, issues have recently come out. Uh, we also talked a little bit, uh, we didn't go deep into his career because we, we had some time constraints, but uh, we he, hopefully we'll have him back in a few months and we'll talk more about Archie 1941 once that series is concluded, and maybe deep, dig a little deeper into his back catalog in terms of both books he's edited and also books that he's written in the past. I did want to thank uh, two people from the Marvel Masterworks fan site um, who in, who submitted questions. We had Jojo F and Shotzi uh, added questions that got some of them got integrated into the interview. Um, so thank you so much and also happy birthday to Brian. It's his birthday on November the 2nd, the day that this is going up. So happy birthday, Brian. Thanks again for joining us on the Comic Shenanigans podcast. We hope to have you back again in the future. Uh, maybe we could even have you uh, jointly with Mark to talk even more about Archie 1940 one in your uh, many collaborations throughout the years, both as editor and writer, and also as co-writers. Uh, so thanks again, uh, but thanks also to you, the listener, for downloading this episode. You can always email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, like the show on Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Thanks once again, and uh, without further ado, let's jump right into the episode with Brian Augustine. Brian, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. Who are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Now you've 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 worked in comics a long time, and usually I, I like to get to the heart of the matter and find out you know where you kind of came into comics as a kid and how you entered the industry. But uh, I want to make sure we talk about your current work first, and we don't miss out on that. So I'm very curious. How did you become involved in writing uh, Archie 1941? Well, uh, when I was editing at DC, um, I hired this unknown kid named Mark Wade to write The Flash. And then when I was uh, getting ready to be uh, a freelance writer, he and I collaborated on quite a number of projects, including Flash and Justice League Year One and a good bunch of other stuff. So we are A, pals, and B, we've been waiting for something to uh, to collaborate on again. And here we are. Uh, as it turns out, I think uh, maybe the reason Mark uh, roped me in not that he had to work that hard, uh, is he knows that I'm a, a history buff. Okay. So, um, and he wouldn't have to do any of the research. So uh, <laughs> I think that was that was the uh, the way it all happened. Okay. Now, I mean, so we've had two issues so far, and then they're really interesting and very, I mean, different from maybe classic Archie in some ways because they're not necessarily fun, uplifting stories, but a really interesting period piece with the Archie characters in set in 1941. Did that really kind of speak to you as uh, being able to kind of do a period piece in that era? Um, absolutely. Uh, I mean, for one thing, as I'm sure it must be known by now, um, the Archie comic debuted, or the character debuted, in December of 1941 uh, in Pep Comics or one of the others. So there's this odd, um, what, convergence of history and pop culture, 
Uh, and yet, the, the uh, Archie comic has always, um, you know, been a sitcom, basically, mm-hmm. and as such has avoided uh, tying itself to uh, specific uh, time um, and place and very much avoided um, serious topics. But the company's idea, and they, they came to us about it, uh, was that it would be interesting to see what the stories might have been like had Archie been living in the actual time of his debut. And I think what they said to to uh, us was, Archie, uh, 1941, World War II. And I think the rest of it really did kind of fall into place. Very, uh, I won't say easily, because Mark made me do all the research, but um, <laughs> it, it came together very nicely. What's interesting about it is, and maybe this is part of you know you guys kind of brainstorming, is that it takes place you know after high school. Like it basically starts as they're graduating, and so you have the characters turning eighteen and becoming you know the uh, the right age to be enlisted. Was that kind of done as a very conscious maneuver so that you could tell that grander story, or was there ever thought of still having them in high school, or was that just kind of a, a non-starter? Uh, well, I think the idea that. Uh uh, although much to our surprise, uh, they couldn't be drafted at 18. <laughs> in, in World War II, the draft age was 21. Hmm. But they could enlist uh, with their with their parents' um, approval Okay. Um, at 18. So to a degree, it wouldn't have been as interesting a story if the, if the characters were uh, still in high school and exempt because that should be hanging over there. You know, will it happen? Won't it happen? Uh, who, you know, will we, will I have to go? Will I be able to come home? Actually, to, you know, what the war does uh, to the families when they have a son in the, in the service during that time. Those elements would have been lost to us if they were in high school. Um, it's, it, you know, further, it's not like they could just go home and turn on the TV mm. and, uh, and and watch the uh, the news. Uh, for you young folks, that's because TV wasn't, it might have been invented, but it wasn't very common. Uh, and certainly, uh, I have a feeling Riverdale didn't have TV. No. But um, I also think that framing the story, um, in a lot of ways, major events like World War II or the Vietnam War or 9-11, those kinds of things uh, are often referred to uh, historically as um, ends of innocence in a lot of ways. Mm. And, I, and, I, and I think we, we wanted to frame it with graduating um, because I think we wanted to give them that last summer, which is the title of the first issue, um, with the freight train of history rushing towards them. Um, What is it going to mean? How does it affect the different characters? Um, As you've now seen from two issues, Archie is glum, um, a bit lost. I mean, and part of that is, um, you know, the sense of history brooding over them. But it's also, I finished high school, what's next? No matter what, what happens next? Mm -hmm. And that, that was the motor that drove our thinking on the topic, but primarily, yes, we wanted to put them within reach of being in the military. 
One thing I really appreciate about the first two issues is that it's it's actually got a quite a wide cast because you know in the second issue we really focus on on the parents and Fred and the other parents kind of commiserating going bowling and then two of them getting drunk and trying to enlist which is both both comedic and and and, and not comedic at all because it's also very serious and why they're why they're there and it's it's just interesting that you kind of really expand it it's not just about the kids it's about other people and you know you have the focus on Moose and the fact that he gets you know he is enabled to enlist and how that affects him and how he feels it's really interesting to kind of to have a wider cast all experiencing as you said the you know the onset of history this big moment this uh, this watershed moment in, in world history is happening and seeing how these characters this real this entire um, town is actually going through it well i think that mark and i agree in general that in a store in a in a, in a situation like archie where after 78 years or whatever it is, 79 years, um, we know them, uh, the cast, as well as we do the town. And the town really is, in a sense, a character, or the character of the town colors how everything is perceived. And um, frankly, in old-fashioned storytelling, if you saw you know, films about boys going off to war and during, during or immediately after the war... Um, the effect on the town was a was part of the story, uh, the best years of our lives and things like that, mm. and and we had that you know consciously in mind that it should be about how it affects everybody that we know in that in the context of Archie and, and uh, Riverdale. I hope I didn't say Smallville before. <laughs> <laughs> no, you said you definitely said Riverdale because <laughs> um. <laughs> I I almost did just then. <laughs> Um, one question I had is: So, how long is the series? I don't. I, I can't remember if it's ever been. If they've said how many issues it runs for. It runs five. Runs five. Okay. Uh, no, it, it's. It's Go been ahead. no. I was just going to say it's it's been phenomenal so far. It's really interesting and um, it's again a somber tone, but it's obviously about you know a serious period and again using very familiar characters like everyone knows Archie in some way, right? Like they're very recognizable right. characters, right. and then using them to tell a larger story uh, with a, a really interesting historical context is really riveting to see how the familiar is challenged and changed by. I mean, as readers, we all know how history goes, but these characters don't know. Well, no, and they were, obviously we, you know, they were exempt from being considered in this light before, because again, that wasn't the purpose. But again, I will say, it's Mike Pellerito and the guys at Archie, uh, Vic Gorelick, who said to us, make it more melodramatic than, than comedic. And, uh, and that opened up the whole, you know, the whole sphere for us. That way, we could do uh, a fairly intense drama, um, inter intercharacter stuff. The, the tension between Archie and his dad, which pays off after that bowling scene you talked about. Um, Archie and Betty, Archie and and Veronica, all the various character interplays get turned a little sideways. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, for instance, if if they're living in a more serious time with, um, you know, life and death right uh, in front of them, there isn't a lot of silly flirting. Um, you know, romance would be less fluffy and more um, clinging together, uh, I think. And we, we definitely make certain um, decisions for Archie. <laughs> 
Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, even on the last, I guess, what, the last page of the second issue with, you know, him kind of going up to the enlistment and being like, you know, we wait for me, kind of, you know, very serious feelings that people had because they didn't know what they were walking into and if they'd ever come back. Exactly right. Exactly right. And and first off, thank you for uh, all the kind words about the work. I mean, we're both of us very proud. We, we I'm not going to say we worked harder because really this thing came together so nicely. Uh, with, I, you know, I think you have the you have the leeway to fudge some things like that, but an awful lot of of that history, as you said a minute ago, is known to us, if not to the uh, to the characters. And I think people would it would bother people if we didn't get something right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, spoiler alert: in the third issue, we discover that the first deployment of American soldiers are going not to Europe and, and not to Japan, but to North Africa, hmm. because that's in, in, the, in the sense of uh, the rollout. They rolled out in company with Britain and a few, and a few other of the allied states. Um, I probably shouldn't say allies. You know, yeah, allies. <laughs> a few of the other allies. And that was where the tension was prior to the U.S. entering the war was in, um, in, in, in Northern Africa and, and uh, France and, and, you know, battles in Spain and things like that. So the first, our first soldiers for the first almost full year, as I recall from the research, went to North Africa. Wow. So the, the soldiers that we meet are going to be sent there. Um, so, and it, you know, it's an interesting thing, and another spoiler. It's, it's Past a, the first third of number two, we're not in 1941 anymore. Oh, yeah. That's true. I guess that's a good point. <laughs> that's funny. And, and we progress through the history of the war through the five issues, through the uh, timeline of the war. I have a question. So in terms of, obviously, you know, was historical accuracy, you know, pretty important to you and Mark, so that to to kind of resist the urge to immediately, you know, throw the characters into Europe as opposed to actually following the historical precedent? Like, was that very important? Was it more important to you or Mark in terms of actually kind of keeping it with actual historical fact? I think it, it's probably more more accurate to say that the actual historical fact by pure serendipity, lined up in such a way as to give us the perfect story. Okay. So that deployment becomes very important. Um, You know, certain events that follow, again, these are all things after the uh, third issue. Um, The, uh, you know, actual battles, actual... uh, actual historical events walk us through and walk the characters through. Plus we play with, you know, home front issues like uh, shortages, um, gas shortage, um, food shortages, coffee shortages. That's what bothers Fred the most after Archie is gone. (laughs) Um, Tensions between the various adults. Um, I don't just mean like, although Fred and Mary have trouble getting together on whether it was okay for Archie to go. Um, but Fred and, and Hiram Lodge, Veronica's father, 
um, there's a sort of background battle between the two of them, the common man and the rich man, mm. uh, partly because Lodge opens a gas station right at the time of the, the biggest gas shortages, uh, charging more than other stations have been charging. <laughs> uh, so Fred labels him a war profiteer. Oh, wow. Uh, again, some of this stuff is, is, you know, we're not completely serious. You talk about the first issue, um, a good bit of the, uh, um, the setup, the summer events, like, um, you know, lost in, in the clouds, Archie walking across a beach with melting ice cream and then getting hit in the face with a, <laughs> a beach ball from, uh, by Reggie. Um, a typical, you know, some typical Archie stuff, but then followed by Archie finally letting Reggie have it and, you know, knocking him to the ground. <laughs> um, and, you know, and then, you know, the, the bit with, the, I think, again, the first issue, his father's trying to lecture him on responsibility and Archie has been watering the lawn and really just making a puddle in one place, <laughs> uh, lifts the hose un, unwittingly and sprays his father in the face. We have these sort of slapstick moments, but the context is the, the difference. In the second issue, that bowling scene uh, is, I think, you know, something we were all uh, finding very amusing. Thank God. Absolutely. Hello? Yeah, I'm still here. Okay. Um, a question. So when when you collaborate with Mark, I mean, it's not like you guys have, haven't done this many times in the past, but um, how did how do you specifically work on this project, and how, how do you collaborate? Uh, it's, we've done different ways, different times. In this instance, um, I can say that um, he and I sort of verbally on the phone and, uh, you know, email and text, uh, passing things back and forth. We um, outlined the direction, the timing, etc. Um, and then, because it's my my penchant, I sort of volunteered then to plug in history and put us on an actual uh, calendar. And uh, in doing so, I found a lot of that serendipitous stuff that wind up moving the story and moving the characters. Um, he and I batted around. Again, mostly, I think, you know, in this day and age, electronically, um, you know, emails of what do you think about this kind of scene or whatever. And then I did the, I would do the first pass, leaving um, Mark to do the, the polish on the, on the final script. But by that point, we'd already done, I would have to say, uh, very much a, a 50-50 work. Well, Okay. Well, again, I'm really enjoying the book, and I think a lot of people are. And it's it's a really interesting way to tell us, like a you know a very a very cool kind of World War II story using very familiar characters. And again, I really like how you guys are using the full cast, and that you're able to explore so many different types of things. Because you know, when I first picked up the book, I would not have expected the second issue to have such a such a great scene with with Fred. And again, the bowling scene and him going to enlist is really interesting. And I like. I, I, now that I know that you have, you know, uh, you're do, kind of doing the historical fact checking, so to speak, um, learning about, you know, what it was like for older men to enlist and how they may not even be placed if they're older than 45 makes sense. But I never really thought about it. And it was really cool to kind of see that scene play out. Well, we, you know, we learned stuff. Like I say, we went into it assuming that 
like modern times, the that 18 is a draft age, and it turns out not to. And we had to make some adjustments there. Um, given Fred's age, we had to sort of adjust the the, the clock and his, because you know, he's a guy in his 40s. That means he probably was eligible as a young man for World War One, but he didn't go. Hmm. It's a, an important it's an important plot point about uh, as it as it is established in the second. It's a you know it's a minor bit of dialogue, but it's. He did not go to World War One, and he doesn't. You know, he may not feel like he did his duty as a young man, and now is kind of like parents often do, living through his son, mm. and that creates a lot of the tension between the two of them. And he would have been old enough to go, so why didn't he go? Well, a little more digging, we find out that uh, that um, when sons were the sole support of their parent. Uh, their mother, specifically, they were exempt. So Fred took over his father's business when his father passed, and even though he was like twenty, twenty-one, I mean, this is kind of boring stuff, but we find these little things. Um, and then we f- would find solutions when those little things seem to argue with, um, with our hopes. Um, I didn't realize prior to this, and Mark is the one who found this bit, was that you were eligible for the draft in, in World War Two up to the age of sixty five. Oh wow. That's just what the rule that's just what the rule said. Yeah. And as you just as you referenced, you weren't likely to get called past well, probably not even past the late thirties. But you had to register all of it up to sixty five. Mm-hmm. So Fred and Al had to register but they were not gonna get called. And they were tipsy at the time anyway yeah i thought that's what i found so interesting about that scene is that you know that they were drunk and uh how much patience you wrote the uh enlistment officer having (laughs) because i thought it was just such so interesting and i guess now here's a question so was that from your research were enlistment offices opened that late that's kind of the idea Uh, during during, at the very beginning i i think what we, we we took an artistic license uh and said that at the very beginning of the war, um, sure. Okay. You know, when, when when they would have been inundated with volunteers. Okay. And he, he says he's about to close, but... Oh, that's true. For the sake of the story, that might be something we... Uh, we uh, we flashed our artistic license on that one. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, again, it's, it's a fantastic book. People should definitely check it out. Um, I only have you for a little Thank bit. You. I only have you for a little bit more time. I did have uh, some uh, listener questions get submitted, but before I get to them, I just want to ask um, uh, a very broad kind of generalization question. But what was it like when you did work in DC editorial in the late '80s, early '90s, before you kind of transitioned more into writing? What was the editorial kind of feeling at the time? Well, that's a, it. Was a very strange period of time, I think. I mean, for no different than probably every other era before and since. Um, comics were going through a bunch of stuff. Um, they were phase of, I think I was, yeah, right in the middle of my being at DC, and I was there for about just shy of 10 years, from well, 87 to 90, late 96. Mm. Um, during that time, they phased out all newsstand distribution and relied simply on the direct distribution, and then on just the one company, the uh, Diamond. So there were 
you know, a lot of uh, expectations that had to be re sort of rediscovered or, or discovered for the first time in the way we did business. Um, we're also going through a lot of technological advances with computer coloring and uh, different kinds of printing and better paper. And we're also going through, especially once we got to a direct distribution only, we went through um, a sort of a major adjustment in the way things functioned on the on the publishing side uh, because you know overall sales were predictable and very solid, but you know they were no longer doing returns, and you know the the sales of a book could be figured much quicker. Mm-hmm. In the in in the days when you had to buy comics at a drugstore or a newsstand, you know it could be months and months before you knew how well an issue did. Um, so yes, we it became better in one ways and and probably not so great um, in other ways. It's also the the period of all the stunting, um, you know, um, stunt covers and uh, trading cards and uh, you know all that off. All that stuff aiming just at collectability rather than um, quality of the of the work itself. So those of us in creative and editorial, it didn't matter to us one way or the other. Yeah. Uh, it, it helped us stay in business, but all that collectability was a distraction, I always thought. Um, but I'll tell you, being in, in that, in, for good and ill, the probably one of the best times of uh, creatively and satisfactorily of, of, uh, of my work. I mean, it was, you know, to try to think of, you know, all of the great workplace comedies like you know, Dick Van Dyke and, and Mary Tyler Moore and WKRP and all the other ones times, you know, a cast of, of, you know, 60 or whatever. Um, there were soap operas and comedies and all kinds of stuff happening and all of it built around, you know, what I used to jokingly refer to as making donuts, you know, all of this, uh, market research and, you know, sales figures and all that. And what we were doing was we're making, you know, silly four color, you know, 10 minutes, you know, read stories. (laughs) So it, it was an interesting, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. That's what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. Um, I enjoyed it, and it was a good place to learn. Hmm. When you did hire Mark on The Flash, um, what was, um, so how long had been, he been editing The Flash up until that point, and what was kind of the general feeling around the office about The Flash at that point? Um, well, I, I, I think I had been, I'd been on the book at that point for, Maybe almost four years. Um, Market started out as a as a an associate editor at the same time I did. We were hired at the same time in in eighty seven, more or less, and uh, we shared an office for a while, and then Mark left. So we were already I already knew what he could do. Uh, Flash during the my initial editorial tenure. Um, was following the curve of just about every book that got up into the high 40s and um, and 50th issues. It was starting to crest and decline in sales. And it wasn't Flash being, it was just an expected curve. And um, 
came to a transition, I wound up taking over uh, Wonder Woman at, at about this time, and I needed a, a writer I knew would get the character to write that book, and Bill Loves, who's been writing Flash for me, was perfectly suited to writing Wonder Woman. He did a wonderful job, and therefore that opened up a place for Mark, who was as much of a Flash fanatic as I was. I first comic I ever bought in the 1960s was a Flash comic. Um, so putting Mark on the book was initially um, sort of twofold. It was one, a chance to give him a book he'd be great at, a chance to to have some fun doing it, and maybe to take some chances we wouldn't have taken uh, because of the momentum, you know, of another, uh, you know, that with Bill, we've been doing this for a while, and I'm not saying we ever acted out, but, you know, the, the infusion of new talent, I thought, would energize us, and it did. And, uh, and, and you know, like a year or so later, when we found Mike uh, Waringo, um, the sadly late uh, and lamented Mike, mm-hmm. um, the book kind of exploded. Mark had some momentum going, and Mike, um, within a few issues, became even more brilliant than when we hired him, and we had our, our lightning-in-a-bottle uh, moment, and we reversed the trend, uh, sales trend. So. I think we stayed fairly steady with Mark coming on. There was a little tiny, you know, upward lurches as we went, but uh, right around the 90th issue of Wally, of the Wally Flash book, I think we started bumping up back into the big leagues with, you know, the sales like, you know, Batman, Superman, up into the into the high. sniffing at 100,000 sales, which I don't think anybody does anymore. But, no, not, but, uh, not generally, no. Back then, I mean, in fact, in those days, cancellation was, uh, you know, like a given if you reached 35,000. <laughs> such a, such a different entire, time we live in now. companies yeah. can add their books together to 35, I don't know. But, uh, and that's just, it's a different place now. But all in all, um, it turned out to A, be creatively um, terrific. And um, like I say, that, that lightning in a bottle moment of Mark and Mike figuring it all out at once and uh, and fans catching on at, at the same time as everybody in the office, I think it did, did, did pretty well for us. It made a, it, it certainly said we, we did our job. We told compelling stories. We collected the, uh, Certainly, a strong fan base, and uh, and we made the sales increase. But you know, what more could you ask? For sure. I mean, and it says something that you know people finally remember. You know that that period, and then now it's finally being collected by DC in these uh, you know complete co- collections of uh, Mark Wade's runs. So it's finally kind of coming into print, back into print because it was such a, a beloved run, and it definitely did a lot to ch- you know change the face of, of of the Flash mythos in a way that no one had ever done before. Well, we were reviled at, uh, in the '90s for coming up with the Speed Force. People thought that was I don't know cheesy or. <laughs> maybe 
felt that it monkeyed too much with the with the history of the character, and I'm pretty sure it it we pointedly worked not to have it change anything. Simply did it as a background fact you didn't know yet, and uh, we worked. I think we worked very hard not to deny the 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 history up to that point at any given moment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we always looked at you know Frank Miller and Daredevil. We'd never heard of Stick before, but that doesn't mean he wasn't there. Uh, Absolutely, you know. that's a good point. So that was that was our model, and uh, yeah, and you know now the TV show is a hit, and and you know I, I say this with a certain level of ego. I'm pretty sure that's more Wally on the screen than Barry, but they call him whatever they want to. Um, but I think there's an awful lot that we see coming back, bouncing back at us from that run including um, the, the by now um, fan and, and company blessed Speed Force. So mm-hmm. we're, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty happy with that as a legacy. And I go to the, conven- to, to the conventions. I go to conventions, and I still run into fans who tell me, I like what they're doing, but this, your, your Flash, Wally's Flash, will always be my Flash, quote-unquote. Absolutely. Well, there's, there's a whole generation. That, there's a whole generation that grew up on that. Like that's, you know, they grew up with Wally as their Flash, and I'm kind of in that same generation. And as much as I like Barry a lot, it's I grew up with Wally, and and a big part of that is because of the run that you were editing and working on. That that's the that's the the Flash I love. Well, I appreciate that. We we thank you very much, and I'm always glad to hear that. I uh, have. I know we're we're just running. We're running short on time. I have a few lightning don't, questions. Don't, don't worry at all about the time. As long as you have it, I, I will. All I'm right. fine. All right. So we have some uh, some questions from some listeners. Uh, the first question is: Was there concern about uh, the twist of Zoom being the villain and the return of Barry Allen leaking out? Um, I guess there was. I mean, we didn't tell anyone. <laughs> <laughs> so we we literally became sort of junior mad scientists uh, hiding in the attic and <laughs> rubbing our hands together and cackling. Um, but, I mean, we were, we were careful to make sure the art team kept it to themselves, and and I think they did. I, I, I know for a fact that I didn't tell anyone else in the office, including uh, the bosses. Oh, really? And I, I never heard anything negative about it, so... Was there any fact that 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 run was our bump, yeah, the first bump in sales? So I have a question about that. So I mean, the, the whole storyline is called the Return of Barry Allen. It's like, how much like did the bosses kind of be like, well, we killed him. So do you have like, what are you guys doing here? Like, was there discussion and how did what was the kind of the germ of that? Like, that's it's a it's a very evocative title to even put on on the on the story because of how you know relatively recently at that point you guys had killed off or not you guys but DC had killed off Barry so was that kind of a hurdle to go through with upper levels of management I think uh, I think what it boiled down to was I went to to maybe to Paul Levitt who was a you know, the president and publisher at the time and um, one or two of the other higher echelon editors. And I said, I just need you guys to trust me on this. And I said, it's not a dream. It's not a hoax. 
and yet it's not what it seems, and please just let us run it out. Hmm. And the same was true of working with the marketing department. So um, I, I guess we had, we had earned a little bit of trust and also there, you know, they, there were 70 some other books or whatever to put out. <laughs> um, so, you know, our book, you know, in the, in the middling doldrums of, of the, of sales, it's like we couldn't have done any real harm, I think. Um, and then the response from, from people in house, once we paid it out, it was like, Oh, nicely done. And, you know, basically, how dare you, you know, <laughs> so a certain level of, we knew perfectly well we were playing with fire. Absolutely. And um, we um, laughingly went about it. <laughs> um, another question about um, what you working on The Flash. Um, well, I, wa- I want to say one more thing about the return of Barry. Sure. Mark and I approached the whole idea of Flash, once we were together, because there was a spoken um, anticipation about Mark and I as a team, because we're we're considered fanboys, not that anyone else working there was not, but that together we would play off our own worst instincts. (laughs) And um, that, you know, before you know it, a whole bunch of things would happen. And the expectation was that we would we would bring Barry back to life because, of course, as as fans raised on Barry Allen's Flash, that would be our instinct. It was assumed, um, and a handful of other things like you know, you know, within a little while he'd have a kid Flash, and those were, to a degree, those were our our, our wishes, if you will. But we knew better. We we had a better a better commercial sense. And we also had a kind of a, don't tell us what we think, you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll show you what we think. And, and so, you know, we decided it made better stories to resist the fashion impulse and be professional. And I think that that was borne out. Um, but in a way, the, the return of Barry Allen was us making fun of the assumption and also of our own instincts. You know, uh, you know, we turned it into a monkey's paw kind of story where you you have what you wish. Are you glad you wished it? Um, that it went horribly sour um, was also, in a way, kind of, I guess, a, an object lesson to us. Barry Allen was DC's, or probably comics, only really canonized saint. I mean, the guy sacrificed his life to save the multiverse. I mean, come on. <laughs> he didn't, he didn't uh, you know, stop, uh, you know, Luther from freezing Metropolis or, you know, or, or a string of bank robberies. He saved the multiverse. And, and we thought, as much as we would have liked otherwise, he deserved the dignity of that heroic finish. And herein, of course, is a, what will now go as an unspoken criticism of eventually bringing him back. <laughs> and we didn't do it, but it was done. And it wasn't done more than a couple of years after we left. No, I guess, but, yeah. It is one of those things I'm always surprised that they, I mean, I understand, like, 
you know, commercially why you'd eventually bring back Barry. But it's interesting because by the time they did, there had been like 20 years. Like people had grown up, grown on and past that character. Well, I, I don't know what was involved in it. I doubt that it was a commercial decision first. I'm pretty sure that it was a creative. It was creatively driven by by the by the folks doing the comic at the time. I'm there. You know, if there was someone who was a bigger fan of Flash than Mark Wade and I, uh, Jeff Johns would be in that in the running. Mm-hmm. And uh, while well, he was a you know a very big fan prior to becoming professional, we have letters in the Flash from young Jeff Johns. Oh yeah, um, <laughs> at, at least one, and he's fairly proud of it. He he's posted it a bunch of times on on social media. Um, he was one of the original. Like like Mark and I, um, he was a Dyson-Wolf Berry fan, and I'm I, you know I don't begrudge him in any way. I, I think uh, he did a great run on on Wally after we left, and um, you know the way the whole thing flashpointed and everything that followed played out, um, it made for good comics. True, but we were better simply because we resisted. That's all. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> It is interesting because, as you said, like he he had an amazing run on Wally. Like probably, like I'd put it up in like my top two runs in the Flash would be Marks and and Jeffs. But then he brings back Barry, a character he'd already done so well with Wally. What was the need to even do Barry at that point? But I mean, that's that's a digression we don't need to make. No idea. Yeah, we don't need to make that kind of digression. Um, Another question. Yeah, I think it was probably a matter of um, you know time to shake it up again, and you know they do that every now and then. Absolutely. I mean, uh, and, and rightfully so. Another listener question uh, was, uh, the Rogues didn't get a lot of play during Mark Wade's Flash run, except at the end of his first run. Uh, was there a reason uh, that you guys didn't use them more? And he said, it's not a criticism. Wade's run is his favorite Flash run of all time. So, Well, there's a couple things going on. One, I think we did use several. And Piper became a... a True. You know, he he reformed and became a regular character for a long time, um, my, and that was with Bill. Bill brought him in. Um, to some degree, there was a challenge to us to come up with new bad guys, hmm. um, new new rogues, um, and we were we were not terribly successful. You don't think so? No, we we came up with some that I think were good or okay, um, but you know, um, I mean, they were better than Big Sur or, or <laughs> you know some of, some of the later you know villains of the Flash uh, of the Barry Allen's run from well, I guess what early eighties, whenever that was. Yeah. Um, but sometimes it felt like we could just as easily have done this, but there was the expectation that we would overdo it, right? Same thing with uh, with uh, Bring Back Barry Allen, that we would overdo the rogues, that we would have a kid flash. I mean, we dodged that one by creating impulse. Um, <laughs> and we had our cake, and we ate it too. Thank you. Um, I think there was really, there was a push to have, you know, more contemporary modern villains. Uh, we, I think we used Grodd quite a bit. Um, and we had uh, Abracadabra figured fairly prominently as well, because those two were frightening. Mm. They were they didn't require a whole lot more uh, amping. So 
we sort of had the the rogues who were not killers. They were colorful trickster bad guys, or or you know bank robbers or whatever. I mean, the trickster was sort of semi-reformed, and he was around. Um, I think you know we used them in we used them sparingly, but we were under under instructions to create new bad guys and. And right now, other than Cobalt Blue, um, and that whole convoluted, yeah. <laughs> as Mark likes to joke, time travel makes my head explode. Um, but I mean, I, I think it all holds together, but we definitely chased Ravage in and out of that out of that hole for sure. Um, <laughs> but Cobalt Blue, I thought was a decent villain. We, we came up with a few others. Um, we had guys who were definitely throwaways. Um, trying to remember what they were called. Whenever we needed somebody to be, de- to be defeated by page three, um, Team Something. I can't remember. Oh yeah. Oh, I can't remember their name. But yeah, I remember. I know. And they always had they always had a different um, right. cast. Yeah, it was as if it was like Menudo, or or you know, they 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 kept the, the group name and just hired new people when the others went to jail. Um, Team Turmoil, nice. um, <laughs> and they were they were throwaways. I mean, they literally were. You want modern villains? Here you go. <laughs> we 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 came up with characters that. We use once or twice, and that's about it. Like Razor, um, it was the '90s. <laughs> we re- we resisted grim and gritty as hard as we could. Yeah. Uh, just a, as a, as a parting question, uh, and then we'll let you get back to your evening. Um, what this is coming from a listener, but just they were curious what your in, impressions were of the Gotham by Gaslight uh, animated movie, or if you've seen it. Um, well, I, I'm glad that it, that it exists. I'm honored that the story was, the overall story was considered important enough to, to make the transition to animate it, to DC Direct, whatever, whatever that is called. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pleased with a lot of what down. I, I, I love the voice casting, um. I'm interviewed and I'm on the DVD uh, for the extras. I'm an extra on a DVD. Hey, that's um, not too bad there. <laughs> I have an I have an IMBD uh, entry now. Um, I'm not. There are choices I wouldn't have made, but it's an adaptation. Hmm. Did, did so? Did you? I mean, are you? Um, are you surprised that it took this long for someone to do it, considering you know the original uh, reception and how lauded that story is? That you kind of surprised it took them this long to ad- adapt it, or are you just pleased that no, they adapted no, no. it at all? <laughs> They'd only just recently started to do the classic graphic novels like Killing Joke, mm-hmm. and and uh, you know I knew that they had a commitment to, and, and may still have a commitment to others. I don't know, but you know like Arkham Asylum and things like that. Um, all of us, all of which came out in a four or five year period between 85 and 90. So I think it was, uh, you know, would I have liked to have had it, uh, you know, earlier? Sure. But when it happened, it was at a time when they were establishing 
the sort of Batman classics um, of, of of well-known books. And, you know, we're, with Gotham, I guess, like, definitely a well-known book. Um, you know, we rate well on, on a lot of, you know, best Batman stories and mm-hmm. you know, best DC graphic novels, all of which I'm proud of. And uh, and Mark, by the way, my editor on that one, so we reversed our normal jobs. <laughs> um, but, no, I was glad that it happened, and I will not speak ill of another medium because they did it. They had a different job, and, and you know, my original book was 45 pages or 48 pages long, mm. and that would not fill the 98 minutes or whatever this was without expansion. Um they touched on things that I was very much, I, I really liked the inclusion of um, Selena Kyle and wished I had thought of it <laughs> in the original <laughs> book. But um, I'm really pleased with, with her addition to the, to the storyline. Um, upon reflection, you know, we, the mystery was, important to to me only in the sense that Batman's a detective and he should save himself but the primary intent of our book was once you're Batman and can't come up with an alibi if you're framed for a murder how do you get out of it Mm -hmm. well that that conceit was translated whole cloth so um you know, the, the main point of the book was gotten. Their solution was different, but it speaks of, of uh, you know, the, the, the wider, both in terms of storytelling time and the, you know, you introduce one stranger in a, in a graphic novel as we did. Well, you know, is it going to be a big surprise when they turn out to be the killer? No. So, you know, I wasn't doing Ellery Queen. Um, and they, obviously, with uh, with this as an animated piece, they had a much, I think, bigger challenge to make the reveal surprising. Mm. Pleasantly surprised, unpleasantly surprised, but that's up to the viewer. Absolutely. Well, Brian, thank you for spending so much time with us this evening, and I'd love to have you back in the future, maybe when Archie 1941 is complete, and we can actually kind of go through um, you know issues 3, 4, and 5 and kind of deconstruct them a little bit in the future, but uh, thank you so much for spending your time with us. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.